Hey, open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John. We will continue in our study. We're in an important uh, intersection here. Jesus has raised Lazarus. Uh, Jesus has been anointed uh, by Mary of Bethany, uh, in Bethany, at Bethany. And the Passover is at hand. And so now we pick it up in chapter 12 of John, starting in verse 12. This is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus' last entry into Jerusalem. And this is God's word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard uh, he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, look, uh, said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let us pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, uh, I'm the worship leader here at this church, and I, I am firmly believe in having a catalog of songs um, a lot of churches will, you know, pick whatever's on K-Love, they play it, uh, and play it, and play it, and then they put it on a do-not playlist, just like the radio station. It's like everybody's sick of it, they retire it. We have a catalog, and I think a catalog is important. Um, there are things that you can go back to. There are things, you know, your college students can leave for five years and come back and go, ah, yes, I'm falling into the arms of some good theology that's stuck to my soul uh, via song and so on. Well, there's one of those songs. It's kind of a 70s jobby, uh, and we only do it once a year, and it's Hosanna. Uh, and you might remember it like from uh, Shallow Creek, Willow Creek days, um, Hosanna, and uh, the, the, the tempo was kind of like this, you know what I'm talking about? Well, we do it once a year on Palm Sunday, you know, quite applicable, right? Uh, but I don't like this little tempo, and I don't like it for three reasons. Number one, I hate to see people clap like this, because I feel like it's just so, like, silly. Um, secondly, I think about Jesus on a cult, you know? He's not coming, he's not like, he's not like barreling into town. He's on a donkey's colt. It's moving kind of slow. And the other reason is kind of theological. Uh, Jesus came to set up a different kind of kingdom. Uh, just as he did not ride in on, he, he did ride in on a colt. He did not ride in on a war horse. He did not ride in with uh, pageantry and gallantry and this, 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 this giant display of power. He comes in in humility. And so when we sing the Hosanna song, we go, bum, bum, da, da. it's real slow. Hosanna, Hosanna. Uh, anyway, I just like that pace. I think it honors this, the content really well. All right, all, that to say, 
You know, you're supposed to have a 3 a.m. test. Did you know that? So if you're a, if you're a, a sermon writer um, and your wife goes in the middle of the night, she goes, hey, honey, what's your message about in the morning? You're supposed to have a quick sentence out of the blue. What? Huh? And if you don't have a quick sentence, you're not ready. It's pretty good. That's a pretty good barometer, isn't it? Of course, I've got it written down here. But um, here, here's, the, here's the 3 a.m. test. What's this about? What's this, this passage about? Um, I think it's this. Salvation in Jesus Christ. Oops, hello. Salvation in Jesus Christ is the last thing you'd ever invent. True salvation. It's the last thing you'd ever invent. This kind of salvation, this kind of Savior. Uh, and we'll see that demonstrated um, by the people here. And I should add, in your own investigative powers. In your own investigative powers, if you had to say, okay, if there is a God, and I'm a sinner, and he's holy and perfect, and that's a problem, how can we fix that? This gospel is not the gospel you would invent. And this Savior is not the Savior you would invent. And uh, it is demonstrated by the reaction of the people uh, in Jesus coming into Bethlehem. Um, you, would, you would think that there would be a warrior winner of the universe coming in in great stride. You wouldn't expect him to see this warrior winner come in on a donkey's colt. You wouldn't expect him to, to, to be born in uh, Bethlehem to a poor uh, virgin girl, would you? Not the kind of Savior you would invent. Um, True salvation is the last thing you'd ever invent. Okay, so we only have two points today. First one is this, the contradictory king. Look at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that would be Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, the feast mentioned, I said again, is Passover, and Jews were required to journey to Jerusalem for Passover, and it's been estimated on the high end by Josephus. You've heard of the historian Josephus? Uh, it's been estimated that there were 2.7 million people in Jerusalem uh, for the Passover. Now, that's on the high end, and Josephus is often criticized for uh, guesstimating the crowd to be too big, Okay. So that's on the high side. It might, might have been 2.7 million people in Jerusalem. On the low side, the, the absolute minimum it would be, estimate-wise, is uh, 500,000 people. All right? So you think 500,000 people. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of people. Um, you know, the crowd in, uh, in, New York, uh, in uh, Times Square in, on New Year's Eve is 2 million. There's 2 million, 2 million people crammed in there. So it might have been that amount of people. Or it might have been 500,000 people, which is the FedEx Forum. You've been to the FedEx Forum? So sell out in the FedEx Forum, fill the capacity 28 times. Imagine, on the low side, on the low side, imagine the FedEx Forum filled a capacity 28 times, and all those people have poured into Jerusalem. Well, that's a lot of people, man. (laughs) That's a lot of... uh, that's a lot of uh, merchants selling things. That's a lot of uh, food. That's a lot of stuff. Uh, in fact, um, the amount of lambs slaughtered for Passover was about a quarter of a million that week. Can you imagine? 250,000 lambs slaughtered and eaten for Passover. And of course, you know, they're celebrating Passover. They're remembering when the angel of death passed over the Israelite households, because they took a lamb as instructed by God, they killed that lamb, they ate that lamb, and they spread the blood of that lamb on the doorposts 
and that was the covering. The angel of death comes by and uh, passes over the Israelite houses, sparing uh, their firstborn. Uh, by the way, um, you know, Jesus celebrated Passover his whole life. He fulfilled all righteousness. We know that he ate lamb. Um, and who, who in here likes lamb? If you, you, the rest of you ought to try it. It's delicious. It's a Rolls Royce. I'm straying from my notes. This is not a, this is, you don't have to write this down. But it is definitely a Rolls Royce ingredient in the kitchen. It is delicious. But anyway, so, but, so all to say, a quarter of a million lambs. Imagine that. Um, and there's even some... Um, some uh, um, legal pepper sprinkled on top. If you look at verse 47 um, of our passage here, um, oh, uh, oh, in, uh, oh, yeah, 57, 57 uh, of chapter 11. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Now, can you imagine the buzz going on in Jerusalem? All those people, all that activity, all those travelers, all that commerce. And there's this legal order out there going, hey, by the way, the religious leadership have said, if you've seen this guy, tell us because we want to arrest him. And you know that the, uh, the religious leadership wanted to kill Jesus, and they wanted to kill Lazarus too. Well, everybody's talking about it. Guys, I mean, this news about Lazarus being raised from the dead in Bethany, I mean, Bethany's only like a mile or two away from Jerusalem, 1.2 miles or two miles or something like that. It's a short way from Jerusalem, and everybody's talking about Lazarus. All this news has made its way in. So don't think um, that there were, you know, 300 people out there with some palm leaves, and it was some little event, and it was really a nothing. It wasn't a nothing. All of Jerusalem was a buzz over Jesus and had heard this news about Lazarus uh, being raised from the dead. By the way, that news of Lazarus being raised from the dead spread so uh, much that even Roman soldiers knew about it. You know, in Matthew's account, when Jesus is on the cross, they go, well, gosh, he saved others, but he can't save himself. I mean, people are mocking him over that. I mean, what? yeah, I heard he raised Lazarus from the dead. Well, look at this. He's dying on a cross. What are you going to do about it? I mean, a week later, it's still, it's still in the air. I'm just telling you that it's, it's big news. It's, it's, it's this, this giant celebrity itinerant preacher figure has come into town, and all of Jerusalem is electrified. Uh, look at verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And uh, Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, all four Gospels give an account of this story, of this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. All four Gospels report it. And uh, what's interesting about it is that John lets the other gospel writers, the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he lets them handle uh, the details about how the colt was uh, secured and all that stuff. All we know is that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it from here. But what's interesting about John's account is he's the only one who mentions palm branches. The other three don't. Only John mentions palm branches. So that's interesting, but um, it's also telling because obviously he thought that was something important to include in his theological narrative. It's not just a history, it's a theological history. He thought the palm branches were important to include. Well, it's interesting because palm branches have nothing to do with Passover. 
have nothing to do with Passover celebration, have nothing to do with the original Passover um, uh, uh, with Moses and the Israelites, had nothing to do with it. Um, Rather, uh, palm branches showed up in the Feast of Booths. If you remember in chapter 7, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, people would build kind of a a shelter kind of a thing, and they would put palm branches on it. uh, And uh, uh, sojourners would come to Jerusalem and either stay in these little temporary huts or they would have their feast out in these temporary huts. They would have a feast out there, pop open a corona. It was a big time. They would have a big celebration out there. Um, now, the answer is, why, why are palm leaves showing up um, at Passover in John's account here? Why, why, would, why would palm leaves show up? And why is it important for John for us to, to, John for us to see that? Well, it's, the answer is this. 250 years earlier, uh, Syrians had overrun Jerusalem and had uh, harmed the temple. And uh, there was this uh, war leader guy who kicked him out, uh, Simon Maccabeus. Uh, he drove out the uh, Syrians. And um, that, you know, that's in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And don't let it spook you if you're going, hey, what about the Apocrypha? The Apocrypha. Um, the, the, you know, Maccabees is in there. It's not a part of the Bible. It is a part of Jewish history. Simon Maccabeus did drive out the Syrians. There was a revolt. He did drive them out. The point is this. Um, At that point, they took palm leaves and waved them around. Why? I don't know. But they took palm leaves, and that became a thing. And it became a thing of national identity. Um, Hey, victory! Wave the palm leaves! Hey, a warrior won the war! Hey, a king is in charge! Yay! Israel! Wave the palm leaves. In fact, they even had a coin minted that had palm leaves on it. Kind of like the United States. If you see a bald eagle, uh, you go, hey, the United States. Hey, that's a symbol of, uh, of uh, American nationalism. You see an eagle, you know, the world knows. We'll swoop down and get you like a mouse, you know, uh, whatever that means. But um, so Jewish nationalism, it was a symbol of that, uh, these palm leaves. Uh, They were icons of victory. So that likely gives us an insight into the mindset of the crowd. John wants us to see this, that the crowd sees Jesus coming in, they take out palm branches, and they wave them around, and uh, it has some significance to them. They're thinking, hey, Jewish history. I mean, America's been around for 250 years. That happened 250 years earlier. I mean, you can see how embedded in their culture that might have been. They're going, hey, victory, here comes the victory. Oh, Jesus is claiming to be king of the Jews. Yay, warrior king. Yay, just like driving out the Syrians, uh, this Jesus is going to come with some kind of cool agenda and get Roman shackles to fall off of us. That's going to be fantastic. That's probably what they were thinking. As they consider this strange shepherd, savior, king. Ah, but not so fast. Uh, there are some other references of palm leaves. Uh, for instance, in Leviticus 23, it says, You shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, uh, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Uh, that's a reference to the Feast of Booths. All right? So uh, palm trees are associated with rejoicing concerning the Feast of Booths. Um, here's another one from Psalm 92, verse 12. The righteous flourish like the palm tree. Okay, so I'll grant you that some people may have seen uh, this Messiah as the real thing. Uh, Maybe they were given, um, 
you know, eyes to see and ears to hear. Maybe they were. But in the main, I think the national flavor was they were waiting for an earthly king. They were waiting for an earthly savior who would throw off the chains of Rome. You know, in verse 13, it says, um, they're waving palm branches, they're crying out, Hosanna. And by the way, when it says crying out, you know, we read that and they go, crying out, Hosanna. It's not like everybody went, Hosanna, 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 Hosanna. That, 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 that term crying out is over and over and over. Hosanna, Hosanna. Think of the most exuberant football crowd you've ever seen where they're just hollering and hollering and hollering and hollering. It keeps going on. That's what they're shouting. Hosanna, Hosanna. The crowd's going nuts. They're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. That means <coughs> save now. Or bring salvation now. Or save, comma, pray. <coughs> P-R-A-Y, you know, pray thee. Uh, save now, save now, save now. That's what they're crying out. Uh, and and they're, they're quoting um, something from Psalm 118, which was said at Passover, by the way. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They sang that messianic psalm, messianic psalm uh, every Passover. All right, so they're shouting Hosanna, Hosanna, and uh, one writer said that shouting Hosanna, Hosanna was a lot like um, when we have hail to the chief uh, here in the United States, or God save the queen in England, or <coughs> my own addition, your college theme song. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you sing your college theme song exuberantly, it's a rallying cry unto what? Victory! That's not what Jesus came to do. It says in verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now let's pause for a second. Just to, This is a long point. We're spending most of our time on it. It's Passover. And uh, people were to come to Jerusalem to remember Passover. And to remember Passover, they kill a lamb, they eat a lamb, they remember blood on the doorposts. And do you remember back in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John? Uh, The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here comes Jesus moving into Jerusalem. Do you you get what is happening here? Do Do you get how significant this is that Jesus enters Jerusalem? He himself is the sinless, spotless Lamb. He himself is the one is about to spill his blood so death will not prevail. That's what's happening here. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. <clears throat> and though he knows that he will soon taste betrayal, he will soon be falsely accused, 
you will soon be beaten and humiliated and put on a mock trial and killed. Even so, ladies and gentlemen, he is the one who is calling the shots. He's not being pushed around by the culture and the crowd and the Jewish religious leadership. Jesus is calling the shots. He is making this scene happen. In fact, he's forcing the religious leader's hand. Um, when he, it's in verse 14, it says, when he found a young donkey and sat on it, uh, just as, as it is written, by the way, chapter, uh, verse 15 is from Zechariah 9, 9. Um, in fact, <clears throat> let me get there real quick. Zechariah 9, 9, listen to this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When Jesus gets on that donkey, he knows exactly what he's doing. He gets on it to fulfill prophecy at the same time. What he's doing is starting a series of events that will culminate in his death. Now, application for your life. <coughs> it's not like Jesus had a pet donkey and like riding it around. What he did was deliberate. He was drawing an intentional reference to this savior figure from Zechariah. The king who is coming to you, having salvation on a cult. He knows as soon as he rides in on that, the religious leadership is going, uh, we know exactly what he's claiming. He's claiming to be this Messiah figure, and he's coming into this, this, this scene with all these people buying into him. Um, they know exactly what he's doing. Hey, would you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of uh, Luke? Flip left a little bit. Luke 19. Some more perspective on Jesus and what he's thinking and feeling and going through. Verse 41 of uh, Luke 19. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, this is Luke's account of the triumphal entry. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, in other words, would that you is, you know, Shakespearean uh, speak for, you know, I wish that you would, oh, that you would, I just, oh, my heart's great desire. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He weeps over the city of Jerusalem. He knows that they're in blindness. He knows that they've got it wrong. He knows that when he walks into this throng, they're yelling, Hosanna, 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 but they know not what they say. They're yelling the wrong Hosannas. Now imagine the palm branches, the continued shouts of Hosanna, the kind of Messiah the people were expecting, and in rides Jesus. He knows they've got it wrong. Yes, heavy hearted was Jesus at this moment. And, you know, it's very different from the way movies depict it. Movies depict it when, in this scene, when Jesus comes in at the trial, triumphal entry, Jesus is kind of like, oh, yeah, a little flattered. Oh, good. Ha, 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 Heavy-hearted was the Savior, friend. Heavy-hearted. He was weeping over Jerusalem. He was heartbroken. He knew it was to come. Um, he, he uh, 
it's it, you know in the movies it's it's got this kind of maybe it's all going to be okay after all kind of a flavor for for storytelling. It's not going to be okay. <laughs> Jesus is going to the cross. You know in Zechariah nine nine again it says your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, and he is humble. We're told some things about the Savior. He comes not on a war horse, but he comes on a beast of peace, this Savior. Not what you'd expect. Here's an application for your life. God fixes you from the inside out. Not the other way around. You know, what we really want, even as Christians, what we really want is a helping hand from God. Kind of want a helping hand, you know, to kind of make it through this tough life. Because, you know, sometimes life is tough. And sometimes you need a little pick-me-up. And you need Jesus to come alongside you and help you out. What we want is a little, little help. That's not what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to make our surroundings better. He came to set up a spiritual kingdom. Whereby he changes us from the inside out. It's a spiritual kingdom uh, he claims lordship over your heart. He claims lordship over your entire existence. So if you're considering God and, uh, y- you know, you're, you're thinking, okay, church, God, ultimate questions, where do I stand? Um, I know I'm a sinner. I feel guilt. I feel that heaviness. I would like relief for that. And you say, save now, save now. You better know what you're asking. It's, it's not a cheap grace. It's a grace that comes to God and says, I surrender. Jesus is the king of the rescued person's heart. We'll talk about more of that, of that at the very end. All right, on to our second and last point, uh, the varied viewpoints. There are three uh, groups of people cited here by John, very clearly seen. Verse 16, his disciples... Did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, okay, that's after he's been crucified and uh, resurrected and he's ascended, he's glorified, he goes up into the heavens. After he was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. Why? Well, the Holy Ghost has shown them what is real and true. It wasn't after until after he was glorified that it was revealed to them the significance and magnitude of what Jesus is doing. The second group is in verse 17. The crowd. The crowd had been with him, that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Now, before you give too much credit to the crowd... They probably, a lot of them, just wanted to see Jesus do another cool trick. Uh, and probably a lot of onlookers who may or may not have been uh, directly witnessing this thing uh, maybe wanted to have it verified or whatever and thought it would give some oomph to their misapplied uh, Hosanna. But at least there was some curiosity going on, uh, and it interested the religious bosses enough uh, that they were really upset about it. So you've got the disciples who don't quite understand, you've got the crowd who have kind of a murky understanding, but at least some kind of curiosity. And then the third group is this, um, verse 19, the Pharisees. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So they're afraid of losing their control. They have power. 
you know, it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's sad. You know, um, in politics, term limits are a really good thing. You agree with me? I mean, go serve your country for four or eight years or whatever it is, and then that time, the problem is, somebody runs for uh, a senator, they become senator, and now they're on TMZ, <laughs> you know, uh, and with DJ Khalif, and uh, you know, they're, now they're celebrities, and uh, they get to eat wonderful dinners in places with powerful people, and it's this, you know, who wants to give up that lifestyle? It makes you kind of cloudy in your judgment. Anyway, all to say, that this, the Pharisees were like that. They, uh, they uh, were afraid of losing their control. Uh, they were in charge of stuff. Uh, they had a really good situation. They had good living conditions, um, and uh, they didn't want to mess up that situation. Um, so I ask you this, ladies and gentlemen, who are you like? Are you blind like the disciples? Are you curious about the Savior? Maybe it's murky, but you're curious. Or are you not willing to give up control of your life? You know, um, it's ironic. It's, it's irony of ironies that um, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and in doing that, it starts the whole process of Jesus' own death. <laughs> he gives life to Lazarus, and that's the thing, the last thing that starts to, to get things to tumble. There's Bethany, there's a triumphal entry, and a week later, Jesus is himself dead. It starts by giving life. And this is iron, ironic, too. Jesus then dies so that you might have life. And it's further ironic that you have life, but to get it, you got to die. <laughs> you come to the cross of Jesus Christ and you say, I'm leaving everything behind. You come to the cross of Jesus Christ and you say, you know what, Lord, I am going to take my whole life and just throw it at your feet and say you could do whatever you want with me. I don't have charge of me anymore, you do. Uh, I'm not the king of my life, you are. I'm not the captain of my fate, you are. <laughs> you die to self when you come to the Savior who gives life. Is that not amazing? What I'm saying to you is this. True salvation is the last thing you'd ever invent. It's topsy-turvy. It's an upside-down gospel. The wisdom of God, this thing, you treasure it? Let me tell you. I've been doing this a long time, and I am worshipfully amazed that the, the deeper I, the deeper I um, climb into this book, the more trustworthy I find it to be. And I, let me tell you, you're not going to find a bigger skeptic than me. I hate C-R-A-P. I hate it. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, I hate fakey stuff, blech. I'm always trying to, yeah, but is that true, but is that true, but is that true? This is true, y'all. It's the mind of God, it's the word and words of God, it's true. Uh, all to say, um, you, you come to this God and you come to his book and you, you throw yourself at his mercy and um, it's not what you'd expect. This is foolishness to the world. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. Foolishness. They think you're idiots. It's an upside-down gospel, but that's what it is. That's what grace is. It's, it's what you would never expect. 
that God, who is holy, 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 would love someone who is rebellious and in opposition to him and dirty, dirty, dirty. He loves them in that condition. And he finds a way to save them and not compromise his justice. How does he do it? He sends the Lord Jesus, who takes upon himself a human nature and lives a perfect life. Not like you and I have lived it, but he lives it perfectly, sinlessly. And he lays it down on a cross and takes punishment for sin so that we can be made free. The innocence that was his is given to us as a gift. A gift is something you can't contribute to, else it's not a gift. That is an upside-down gospel, isn't it? It's not what you would invent, but that's the reality of it. And that is this king who, by the way, when he comes back again, he's going to be on a war horse. When he comes back again, he'll judge all things. But in his salvation, he comes on a beast of peace. Upside-down gospel, the last thing you'd ever expect. Lord, the... um, marvels of your word, the marvels of your gospel, the marvels of your person are exhilarating to the soul. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we, would, we would tremble in our spirits over the beauty of this gospel. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would show us yourself clearly, that uh, I pray, Lord, that every soul in this room would Uh, understand, be shown, and be given grace to embrace the free gift of eternal life. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to make us more like Jesus. We want to die to self. We want to surrender to our King. Um, And we pray that you would make it so for your glory and for our good. Amen. Thanks, y'all.